first case is Terry versus Public Service Company of North Carolina at all. And we will hear from the appellant. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, my name is Robert Levin. I represent Mr. Lucas, the appellant in this case. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal time, Your Honor. Today we are here asking this court to reverse the majority opinion of the Court of Appeals, which reversed the trial court's granting of summary judgment in Mr. Lucas's favor on all issues in this case brought by his former tenant, Mr. Terry, against not only himself, but originally against public service gas. The complaint filed by Mr. Terry alleged four claims against Mr. Lucas, violations of common law negligence, violations of the North Carolina Residential Rental Agreement Act, negligence per se, and breach of the implied warranty of habitability. But the underlying issue we would submit on all of these claims is the total and complete lack of notice to Mr. Lucas as the landlord of any issues, concerns, or problems that the plaintiff, the tenant, had for the 11 years that he was a tenant of Mr. Lucas. The issue is whether or not a landlord can be held liable for problems he did not know existed. And we would submit that both the trial judge and the minority dissenting opinion of the Court of Appeals got it right, that he, could, he cannot be, and that summary judgment was properly granted in this case. Our, our tort law, though, does allow liability and negligence when someone didn't know about something, if they should have known. I think what we're going to hear from your friend, for example, is that there's a number of reasons that your client should have known, and that's the standard, even if there's no actual notice. So, for example, common law negligence saying uh, that an ordinarily, an ordinarily prudent landlord over the course of half a decade would go and check on you know, the pipes, the HVAC, all those sorts of things, and discover it. So what, what's your response to that? I think we're going to hear that from your friend. What's your response this to that? This court has never held that to be the law in this case, and that is a public policy decision that the General Assembly can clearly add in our general statutes if they choose, but this court has not. The few cases where this issue has been addressed, uh, the courts have made it very clear that the landlord is under no obligation to take evasive action to inspect a problem, and that's what we would have had to have had here. Uh, the, the Bradley versus Wachovia case about tearing down walls to get to a chimney, the court made it clear that there's no responsibility or expectation of a landlord to, to do that kind of evasive testing. So that would be my response, is that the courts have never recognized that. And if the General Assembly wishes to, that's certainly within their prerogative, but it's not something that's within our common law or within the Residential Rental Agreement Act. So you're, oh, no, go ahead. In this case, it wouldn't have been necessary to tear down a wall to inspect the furnace, right? I uh, would disagree with that. The only evidence in the record about the condition of the pipe was after the floor was removed. So no one testified about the condition of the pipe. So you're saying that, the, that if the landlord 
had inspected the furnace on some regular basis, he would have never discovered this problem. We don't know that, but what we do know is that both the City of Durham Fire Department and the gas company itself went out there on multiple occasions in the four months before the incident and found nothing wrong. So going back to what the landlord's duty is under our law, if, if, he, if you do agree that, that the common negligence standard applies and that as the landlord, he had a responsibility to um, maintain the premises in a, in a reasonable condition. Uh, the law is very clear and our cases have held that a landlord is not an insurer of the tenants. I, I understand that, but what, if the landlord has some obligation here to maintain the premises, are you suggesting that that doesn't, he doesn't have to actually know what condition the premises are, are in in order to maintain them? We're talking about the interior residential quarters of the tenant. The, the tenant is the person who has the best knowledge of if something is working or not. Mr. Lucas was in the neighborhood. His church is around the corner that he ministered. He knew the plaintiff. He knew the plaintiff's kids. They had gone to his camp at the church. He saw him all the time in the neighborhood. He would always ask him how things were. And the response every single time was fine. But in terms of the landlord's responsibility here, are, are you saying that he had no, I, I hear you that we don't know if he had inspected the furnace whether he would have found the defect, but on the question of whether or not he had any duty at all to maintain the furnace, is it your contention that he could maintain the furnace without ever coming to look at it? The furnace was working. And that's what, that's what is required under our law and the Residential Rental Agreement Act, so, have a working furnace. So, in your, so in, in your formulation, then, what was the landlord's uh, duty here to this tenant? The landlord's duty was if there was a complaint or an issue brought to his attention, to fix it. So only if there was notice. He had no other I think other the law is very clear. And this case in the Oreo case in 1992 talks about the notice requirement that a landlord must have under the Residential Rental Agreement Act. Right, but just under common negligence, com I, 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 I understand. Un under common law, there's no responsibility in terms of other than know or should have known, and there's no responsibility for an inspection under common law. So, so he has no duty whatsoever under common law, is, seems to be what you're saying. That would be my interpretation of, our, of this court's 200 and some odd years of, of precedent in that regard in a landlord-tenant situation. Okay, wouldn't the, in determining what the duty is, the duty ordinary care in a circumstance like this, suppose uh, that there was testimony from landlords that a you know, reasonably prudent landlord knowing that, and I get, now this is not the record in this case, but suppose you know, they said, we, everyone knows that pipes corrode after about five years. So every five years on all your properties, a reasonably prudent landlord knows you need to go around and check all the pipes because they might be corroded. It could create a danger. And then based on that, there's evidence in the record that the particular landlord's defendant in that case did not do that for, you know, decades. Couldn't that be a duty and a breach of the duty? I mean, the, if all negligence really is is the duty to use ordinary care to avoid foreseeable harm to others, it seems like there could be a duty there, but you, you just say no to that? I would say this court has not recognized that duty of a landlord to inspect the, the property. And, and it all goes back to uh, whose responsibility is it to create that 
duty. Then I would submit under common law there's not a case in North Carolina without some notice where a landlord has been held liable. And if the General Can Assembly- Can I take you back out of the landlord-tenant? I think I, I misheard something you said to Justice Earls, and I wanted to follow up on what Justice Dietz, Dietz first asked. So co under common law, tort law, you have, you, there's a possibility of constructive notice and should have known. Is what you're saying is that in the landlord-tenant world, it's actual notice or nothing? That would appear to be the reading of the law from this jurisdiction. I would, I would agree with that. What would be the principled reason for making that distinction, for treating this kind of claim differently from all other negligence claims? That the, the court has made it clear over the years that a landlord is not an insurer. And if you're not an insurer and responsible for the for your, the safety of a tenant, that's a big distinction I would submit as to the ordinary rules of negligence. Because the, the issue is still what, whether the landlord knew or should have known. And if there's no notice to the landlord and there's no responsibility to conduct an inspection I, by I th any. I think what they're getting at though is if, if you say that there is no duty without notice that you have eliminated the should have known. That, I think that's what my colleagues are getting at or maybe I'm misunderstanding them. And, and, and so if that's your position, which it seems to be that that's what you've said, so please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. But. Well, in terms of an actual inspection, the record is clear that Mr. Lucas never went in there and, and checked it. But in terms of asking Mr. Lucas, the tenant, how things are going and whether he had any issues, I would argue to the court that that is a form of an inspection, that he's asking the tenant if there's anything wrong, and the heating is working, and there's certainly nothing in the record and nothing to suggest by virtue of the fact that the gas company went out there with the gas meters and didn't detect the supposedly corroded pipe that had been there for all these years, when you would think that would have been something that a gas leak detector would have caught. So he, he, he also, though, didn't inspect the furnace or the crawl space um, when he did his pre-move-in inspection, if, if I understand the record correctly. So um, that's when the, the premises were not occupied and he was preparing them for new tenants. Are you saying there was no, no duty to, to do a reasonable inspection at that point either? I think that the record is clear that the heating was working at the time of the inspection, of the, of the time of the move-in. And in terms of requirement to check something that happened 11 years before, I think it's pure speculation to say whether that would have shown anything or not. He could have inspected it and it would have been perfectly fine and whatever happened, happened during the course of the next 11 years. So I'm not saying that there isn't a, a duty but there's certainly not a duty as recognized within either the City of Durham Housing Code or the Residential Rental Act or even in common law for any cases that I've seen before. Thank you. The record is clear in terms of the information that the plaintiff had 
about the problems beginning in January of 2016 until the unfortunate incident in April of 2016. But again, the plaintiff never told Mr. Lucas of any noises coming from the furnace, of any problems with it producing heat, uh, with it not working in, in any way. Um, and his wife, in fact, testified that she thought that the home was in pretty good shape. So in addition to the negligence, common law negligence, there's also the violation of the North Carolina Residential Rental Agreement Act, negligence per se, and the breach of implied warranty of habitability. In terms of the North Carolina Residential Agreement Act, again, the Court of Appeals doesn't even mention the DiOrio case. But in the DiOrio case, which was a 1992 decision from this case, this, this court talks about the duty of a landlord to, take, to make repairs and do whatever is necessary to put and keep the premises in a fit and habitable condition. Plaintiff contends that the defendants were negligent because they failed to repair a dangerous staircase causing plaintiff to suffer injury. However, the statute requires that a landlord must have knowledge, actual or implied, or be notified of a hazard's existence before being held liable in tort. And they cite 42-42A4, referencing the plaintiff's complaint, which talks about 42-42A2, which is exactly the same statute that's being cited here. Now, the Court of Appeals decision didn't mention DiOrio or not, and talks about the fact that in, in, in that case, notice wasn't required. And I would submit to you, of course, you're not bound by the Surratt case, which is cited by the plaintiff's brief, as well as the majority of the opinion of the Court of Appeals. But they totally ignored this court's decision in DiOrio, which talks about the fact that notice is given. And that goes to the implied warranty claim and the breach of the residential act, that there's simply no case in North Carolina where the landlord didn't have some notice, whether it be oral or written, of a problem. Mr. Lucas was completely oblivious to the fact that the gas company had been there on repeated occasions, that the city of Durham Fire Department had been to the house on repeated occasions, that Mr. Lucas had, that Mr. Terry, rather, had smelled gas, that the neighbors had smelled gas, about all these visits between January and April. He had no knowledge of it whatsoever. And therefore, that's why Mr. Lucas would submit that the decision of the Court of Appeals is error. So let me ask you, you agree that the RRAA creates a statutory duty to, quote, make all repairs and do whatever is necessary to put and keep the premises in a fit and habitable condition, correct? Yes, Your Honor. And so if I understand your definition of maintain, repair versus maintain, it's, it's, you're maintaining and keeping it habitable if it's working, right? That would be correct, I would think, so, yes. So doesn't that just make superfluous every word, all the words in the statute after make all repairs? Because as long as you repair something to keep it working, you've complied with the statute. Isn't that where your reasoning about as long as it's working, it's, you've met your duty? 
Isn't that where that leads us? If you have no notice of a problem, then how can you be held liable for something going wrong if the words of the statute have any meaning? Because it's very clear in A4 that you have to have notice. And in fact, the statute specifies written notice. This court in Deorio says when you're interpreting A2, which is the section that Your Honor had just cited, that you have to have notice as well. Would you agree with me there are scenarios where maybe the, the tenant nor the landlord has actual notice of a dangerous defect? Sure, absolutely. Okay, and then in that situation, your argument would be in that situation, there's never any duty because there's no actual notice by either the landlord or the tenant. It wouldn't be a, a violation of that particular statute, but there might be other areas uh, that which might be applicable. But in terms of they're not, not providing a, a rental property pursuant to the statute because the, the notice hasn't been given. And the General Assembly has included that language and requirement for notice, which has since been interpreted by this court to be broader for a reason. So give me an example of where there's not a requested repair, but there's also something that the, the landlord needs to do to do whatever is necessary to put and keep the premises in a fit and habitable condition. So give me, can you think of a situation where there's not a repair requested or needed, but I'm trying to make sure we're not erasing parts of the statute. If, if the landlord didn't have notice of something, then I don't, it, it makes it very difficult to envision what this section would mean. I, I mean, that's the best way I can explain it to the court because they're, they're not unnoticed and if they're not unnoticed then the, the statutes would seem to be inapplicable. Well, I'd like to go back to your um, contention regarding what this court held in Diorio about 42-42A2 um, because the court there examines whether or not there was implied knowledge. So, so, the, so the, the opinion states the statute requires that a landlord must have knowledge actual or imputed or be notified. Then it goes on to discuss how in that case there was never notice and then an entire paragraph about whether there was there are facts supporting implied knowledge. And so doesn't that case leave, make clear that A2 doesn't require actual notice and that implied notice, if there are facts which support that there should have been implied notice, is still a basis under that statute? Well, I think it potentially could be, Justice Earls, but if you look at what the facts are in the underlying complaint of the tenant in Diorio, it, it's a situation where, again, where the tenant had knowledge of an issue with the staircase. And he was living there. He was going up and down those stairs on a regular basis. The tenant had knowledge. The landlord didn't. Right. So there's certainly no implied knowledge in that case, just like there's no implied knowledge in this case. Right, but the opinion leaves open and examines whether or not in a different case there might be implied knowledge. I, there certainly could be a situation where there could be implied knowledge. I don't believe this to be the case, though. Um, he certainly had no notice of any of all the things that are in this record about what happened up, up until the time of the incident. The 400% increase in the gas, the multiple visits, as I've said, to the fire department, the gas company. Mr. Lucas knew none of that. 
the final claim in this case is the plaintiff has contended that Mr. Lucas violated the housing code of the city of Durham. Again, it's important to note, and the record is clear, that there's nothing in the record to show that the city of Durham had ever cited Mr. Lucas for any violations of the housing code before this incident. Now, I understand it's unpublished, and I understand it's from the Court of Appeals, but in the Taylor case, which I've versus Batts, which is attached to my brief, the landlord in that case was cited by the city of Wilson for a housing code violation before the incident, and yet the Court of Appeals still found that that violation wasn't enough to get to a jury and upheld summary judgment. Here, we don't even have that. We have nothing from the city of Durham. There are no cases directly on court from this court, and the dissent noted and agreed with Judge Hudson that there's no reason to distinguish how this court has interpreted the building code as a safety statute versus the housing code as a safety statute. And again, this court has interpreted in the Lamb case that the building code, in order for a violation to have occurred, the landlord or the property owner must have knowledge. Again, there's nothing in the records to suggest that Mr. Lucas had any knowledge of any potential violation of the housing code. All that didn't come into effect into his knowledge until after April 17th of 2017 when the incident occurred. The dissent says that in his mind, and I would submit it makes perfect sense, there's no reason to distinguish the building code from the housing code, and they both should be treated the same. The effect of the court's decision mandating inspections is creating new law, and it's certainly within the purview of the General Assembly to do that. It's not within the purview of the Court of Appeals. It's a policy decision. The only person in the record who testified about the duty is the plaintiff's expert, Daryl Greenberg, who said that there's a duty to inspect. And I realize this gets back into the common law negligence that we talked about early on, but no one else has said such a duty exists. But even if you look at what Mr. Greenberg says when he was asked, well, how often do these inspections have to occur? Is it once a year? Is it twice a year? What does the inspection have to cover? What happens if the tenant doesn't agree to the inspection? Well, the lease did have a provision that gave the landlord access to the property upon reasonable notice. That was to the, if you read the section, it's not the most well-drafted lease I will submit, but that's in dealing with the section, paragraph one, I believe it is, when it talks about the yard. There's nothing about the interior of the house. And in fact, Mr. Lucas went over there to the yard, and the Court of Appeals majority opinion noted the issues he had 
with debris in the backyard. Now, what they didn't talk about in the Court of Appeals opinion was that when he went inside the house, it was, it was, it was kept up nicely. The front of the yard of the house was kept up nicely. But that's the only provision in this lease about the right of the landlord to access the property. So I would submit to you, I don't believe that that's on point. But even if he had that right to go into the property, without some indication of a reason to do so, we would submit that that's not enough to cause him to have liability in this case. The dissent spells out a number of reasons of, for concern about this judicially created duty to inspect. No court in this case, in this state has held such a duty exists. And I would submit to you that if the General Assembly wishes to create that duty, that is certainly within their authority, but it's not within the authority of of the Court of Appeals. The only evidence that the Court of Appeal notes that would give Mr. Lucas any rise to have any issues or concerns with the way this property was being maintained was the fact that there was some debris in the backyard. As the Court of Appeals dissent noted, that there cannot be any possible reasonable nexus between debris in the backyard and issues with the heating system in the crawl space. The expert's opinion regarding the creation of the duty to inspect As Justice Newby had held in the Curley case when that same individual came up with a, an opinion as to the liability of a landlord regarding a dangerous dog and rejected his conclusion that such a duty existed irregardless of knowledge, we would ask that that same effect be had here. That just because you have an expert to give an opinion as to the existence of a duty to inspect, that's not enough given the total lack of North Carolina law, whether it be case law or statutory law on this point. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from Appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, may it please the court. I'm Steve Epstein, and along with Mike Malone, it is our privilege to represent Anthony Terry, the plaintiff in the trial court, and the appellee here. Today, we are asking this court to affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals and remand Mr. Terry's common law and statutory claims for trial. As to common law negligence, Your Honor's defendant, his amicus, and the dissent argue that the legal principles at the heart of the Court of Appeals' opinion depart radically from existing law. Yet the reality is just the opposite. It is they who are asking this court to fundamentally change the law. 
in dozens and dozens of opinions over the last two centuries, this court has made crystal clear that it is within the exclusive province of the jury, acting as the collective conscience of the community, to determine what ordinary or reasonable care means in any given case. Whether a defendant has applied ordinary or reasonable care toward a plaintiff is solely for the jury to determine. The seminal undisputed fact here is that not once in 11 and a half years did defendant or anyone engaged by him enter the crawl space of his rental property to inspect or provide routine maintenance on the furnace or gas pipes, which were plainly visible to the naked eye, not subterranean or concealed. And in contrast to what my esteemed colleague said, that's plainly visible in the record on appeal. If you look on page 685, you can see exactly how visible the gas pipe is that we're talking about in this case, just beneath the, the floor joist in the house. Of course it's gonna be visible to the naked eye because it has to be inspected. You can't have a furnace that is submerged underground or is otherwise behind walls and not available to inspect. That would make no sense whatsoever. The radical proposition defendant presents today is that by choosing to never perform an inspection or perform routine maintenance for 11 and a half years, he has, he has somehow insulated from liability. The landlord's fire-breathing appliance, which after all is what a furnace is, can be left uninspected and unmaintained for a decade and somehow they contend that satisfies a landlord's obligation to provide reasonable care. Under this radical new interpretation of the law, a jury isn't even afforded the opportunity to weigh in on whether that level of inattention and inaction falls short of satisfying the landlord's duty of care. Your honors, of the 719 pages in the record, eight words literally leap off the page, eight words that encapsulate what this case is all about. They came in response to a question posed to the defendant at his deposition. I could tell myself it was pretty bad, he said. I could tell myself it was pretty bad. Defendant was testifying about the severely corroded and rusted condition of the gas pipe as he observed it in 2017, a few weeks after the natural gas explosion, the very first time he had laid eyes on that gas pipe or the furnace since renting the home to the Terry family in 2005. What defendant saw with his own two eyes that day was a metal gas pipe that was so rusted and so corroded, it literally fell apart when his contractor began tugging on it. Tragically, defendant made that discovery only after it was too late to prevent the explosion that forever changed Mr. Terry's life. Your friend argues that uh, there's no case in our jurisprudence that says there's a common law duty here. Can you point to a case that says there's a duty to inspect or that gives us some guidance on when, what's ordinary care in that context, how, how frequent an inspection would have to be, anything like that? Yes, the case is this court's seminal opinion in Nelson versus Freeland, 1988, 25 years ago, the case that set aside the distinction between the duty of care owed to invitees and licensees. That court in every case since has held to that, that landowners owe a duty to exercise reasonable care in the maintenance of their premises for the protection of lawful visitors. Yeah, but can't that 
actually cut against you because it, with that logic, it's the tenant who's sort of the homeowner and the one who would have the duty to go and make sure that there's not any kind of dangerous conditions. And the, uh, the principle there would be as soon as the tenant finds something and alerts the landlord, then the duty is there and the landlord has to immediately fix it or face there's negligence principles, but it's, you know, the, the landlord can't just say, hey, anybody go in that house, because if you rented it out, you don't have that right anymore. You've given it over to the person who lives there. Respectfully, Justice Dietz, the tenant is not the landowner. And under Nelson versus Freeland, and all cases, both before and after Nelson versus Freeland, the obligation is on the person, the, the owner of the premises, to perform reasonable care for, for the protection of visitors to those premises. And the tenant is not that person. So, no, I would disagree with that. that and sort of appeals. But how then would a tenant, because isn't the point that you, you use contractual rights to agree to what extent when you're renting property from someone else, anybody can, you know, it's going to be yours and you can exclude others or what access the landlord would still have. And here, I think part, part of the challenge is where, you know, this is the sort of circumstance where it's the tenant's home. And so there's, and there's, it's not clear that the landlord is really the one that's going to be going and doing things like, let me just walk around and make sure that everything's been maintained and looks like it's in good condition. That's something the tenant will do and has an obligation to alert the landlord if it looks like there's anything wrong. And that's what triggers the landlord's obligation then to immediately fix it. Respectfully, Your Honor, I would suggest that everything that you just argued is a jury argument. These are all jury questions. And Mr. Levin can certainly make all of these arguments to the jury, and the jury may find that his client, based upon everything you just said, exercised reasonable care. But the only obligation here, it's not a duty to is, inspect, it's a duty, a duty of reasonable question? care. I, are, are you sure about that, the duty is a jury question? Because haven't we said that's actually a legal question? Yes, a duty is a legal question that is not a duty of reasonable care. But as this court held in the Collingwood case, and in dozens of cases going back hundreds of years, defendants owe a duty of reasonable care to a plaintiff if the, if the plaintiff is, is within their ambit. And certainly based upon Nelson versus Freeland, this plaintiff, Mr. Terry, is within the ambit of the defendant, Mr. Lucas, because he is somebody who is on the property with permission. So there is a duty of reasonable care. And this court has held that is only in the rarest of cases that the duty of reasonable care can be taken away from the jury. This is a jury question. And so, every so let's say that there was a hole in the yard, a, a large hole. Um, somebody comes on the property and gets injured by stepping in the hole. Is that the landlord's duty uh, if the landlord had no information about the hole? We're still talking about the same duty, which is the generalized duty of care as this court has held in Collingwood. But the facts there are very different than the facts here. Here, the question is, is it reasonable that a landlord for 11 and a half years will literally turn a blind eye to the fire-breathing appliance in the crawl space, i.e. the furnace? There, you're talking about a condition that was not there at the inception of the lease, presumably, and that developed at some point that the landlord would have no reason to know about. So what we're really talking about here in, in the colloquy with my opposing counsel, I don't think we got to it, but I want to focus on something they said that I think is going to answer your question, Chief Justice. Um, on page 16 of his brief, defendant says that, quote, 
The plaintiff has failed to produce any evidence showing that Mr. Lucas knew or should have known of any issues with the furnace. And this is getting to your question. Yet that language does not articulate correctly the law of negligence. The law of negligence asks the question of whether a defendant knew or in the exercise of ordinary care should have known of a dangerous condition. In their brief and in the dissent, they left out the part related to ordinary care. Yet that phrasing, or in the exercise of ordinary care, which directly answers your question, places front and center the question of what is the exercise of ordinary care in a situation like the one presented here or like the one presented in your hypothetical. Here we're talking about a furnace that everybody knows you've got to maintain a furnace. It doesn't maintain itself. It breathes fire. It needs to be checked on. It has natural gas running through it. A hole is a very different scenario. The facts in that case may be sufficient for a judge on a motion for summary judgment to conclude that doing nothing for 11 and a half years still warrants summary judgment, but not here under these facts where you're talking about a fire-breathing appliance in the crawl space that the landlord has done nothing to inspect or maintain for 11 and a half years. That, that's in the 99% of the cases that is a jury question. Whether the what does the record here show with regard to the number of times that the tenant uh, called uh, for assistance uh, because of smelling gas um, uh, with regard to public service uh, company or other entities? Well, the record is zero. The, 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 there, is, there is no evidence that Mr. Mr. Terry ever smelled gas in his house, first of all. There's, there's nothing. And I will give you all the, the record sites of this. It's pages 256 to 57, page 252, page 251. And the only instance in which there was a colloquy about whether there was a gas leak in his home occurred between Mr. Terry and employees of PSNC who informed him they have checked his house and there are no gas leaks. So this isn't a case about contributory negligence, and that's not how this case got here. Well, my, my question, though, is how did he come to have a conversation with public service company officials or employees? Because there were people in the neighborhood who smelled gas, and they, the public service employees were checking manhole covers and all kinds of places, and eventually came around his house, and they informed him that they checked around his meter and there were no gas leaks. But that has nothing to do with the deteriorating condition of the gas pipe. We're talking about apples and oranges there. The deteriorating, yes, sir. I see you're about to ask another question. I don't want to step on it. Well, you know, I'm still struggling with the idea that uh, the tenant knew that others had suggested there were issues in smelling gas, and yet the tenant didn't think it was important enough to report that to the landlord. How does that shift a duty to the landlord uh, as opposed to uh, the duty uh, being with the tenant to let the landlord know about the situation? Your Honor, I think we have to be very careful about the way we, were, we, we use the word duty. And I think Justice Dietz is correct. Duty implies something that's legal. The only duty in this case and in a case like this is a duty of reasonable care which 99% of the time is going to be a jury question. And I believe everything Your Honor just articulated will be part of Mr. Levin's closing argument to the jury in this case, that you should not hold the landlord responsible, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, because Mr. Terry knew all these things and he never picked up the phone. But that is not a basis to take this case away from the jury as the trial court did. But, counsel, what, one thing, that there is no duty 
to use reasonable care to stop someone else from being negligent. And it seems to me that the issue in this case is that um, why we wouldn't treat the tenant like uh, a homeowner. So someone who the duty to go around the home where you live and make sure everything is in good condition is on the person who lives there, who resides there, not on someone who uh, could actually be contractually excluded from even being permitted to come in and, and look around, and that the duty only arises for the landlord when the person who resides there finds a problem and says, you need to fix this. We, we have this, you have a duty now. Well, Your Honor, respectfully disagree. Again, we're getting back to the question of, of the exercise of ordinary care and what should have been known in the exercise of ordinary care. This furnace is not owned by Mr. Terry. It is located in a portion of the house that he doesn't frequent. The notion, it, certainly the, the um, chapter 42, 42 does not contain any obligations on Mr. Terry to conduct an, an inspection of the furnace in the crawl space. And with respect to your question about whether he even has the right, that the landlord has the right to go in, uh, I, I respectfully, Mr. Levin did not correctly um, re reference the lease. The lease, as in most leases in the state of North Carolina, because the Apartment Association lease, which is uh, in the appendix to the, um, the amicus brief, um, paragraph 17 of the Apartment Association lease, paragraph 1 of this lease, management shall have the right to enter and inspect said premises at any and all reasonable times. So to the extent contractually somebody else may be in a different contract, that's not true for the Terry's here. I want to move on because my time is, I see my time is moving on. I want to move on to 4242, if I might, Your Honors, if that's okay, uh, so that I have sufficient time to talk about that. The plain, unambiguous words our General Assembly selected to define the scope of the landlord's obligation to his tenants could not be more clear. Under subsection A2, a landlord must, one, make all repairs, and two, do whatever is necessary to put and keep the premises in a fit and habitable condition. The scope of that obligation is incredibly broad. And that obligation isn't merely related to the condition of the premises at the inception of the lease. That's because the word keep is synonymous with maintain or continue to maintain. And I want to quote from this court's decision in Rappaport versus Days In. Quote, the duty to keep the premises in a reasonably safe condition implies the duty to make reasonable inspection and to correct unsafe conditions which a reasonable inspection would reveal. That's this court's opinion in the case of Rappaport versus Days End. The legislature purposefully chose, through the word keep, to impose upon landlords this continuing obligation of maintenance to make sure the premises are always fit and habitable. Keep connotes vigilance. Vigilance is a jury question. So I think your friend, what I understood your friend's principal argument to be is, you don't, we don't need to get into the statutory construction of parsing the difference between A2 and A4. Because Diorio said it's all, it all has the notice requirement. So what, what's wrong about that reading of Diorio? Well, I, I would suggest what's wrong about Diorio's reading, what's wrong about Diorio's reading is that A2 is A2 and A4 is A4, and I will make that exceptionally clear by referring to A3. So A3 says, keep all common areas of the premises in a safe condition. It uses that exact same word, keep, which again, connotes vigilance. We got cases all over the place in North Carolina talking about what the common areas requirement means. And guess what? In not a single of those cases is there some obligation that's ever cited in A4 that no, the landlord is without notice, therefore the landlord did not have that obligation to keep 
the common areas in a safe condition. It was simply a misreading of the statute. And it, I, I, that, that makes sense to me, but I guess my, my question to you then is, but are you saying there's really no way to um, uphold the, the, or to reverse the trial court's ruling here on this issue? without overturning DiOrio? I mean, it wouldn't be overturned. DiOrio had like seven different re reasons why it affirmed, including the fact that the plaintiff was contributorily negligent, including right, the fact- I mean, on this holding, because it, it sounds it's a like misreading. you're acknowledging that that seems to be one of the holdings in DiOrio, and we would have to reject that holding, you know, overturn that portion of the case in order to- Your Honor, it's a, basic right? it's a basic principle of statutory construction that if A4 says, in this requirement, provided that notification of needed repairs is made, is not also in the others? It, it, it's very simple statutory construction. I right. believe even Justice Scalia would agree with me right. on got, that point. I'm not, I'm not arguing with you about that. I'm, you know, this, a lot of people have been talking about this court and sorry to cite this. And what I'm saying is I, I agree with you on your statutory construction point, but we have a case that's been a longstanding precedent that said something different. And it sounds like what you're telling is just that, that was wrong, overturn it, because you know, it wasn't a correct construction of the statute. And I'm just trying to understand if that is, in fact, what I would happened. phrase the language in this opinion, Your Honor, if I were writing the opinion, and I, obviously I'm not going to get the chance to do that, but if I were writing the opinion, I would say the court in DiOrio incorrectly conflated the notice requirement of A4 with the obligations of A2, which don't contain a notice requirement. That's all. Because clearly A3 doesn't contain a notice requirement. A3 doesn't live a different life than A2. So we've got all kinds of cases. Icy sidewalks is the best example, right? Landlords clearly have an obligation to be vigilant, that word keep, about icy sidewalks when the weather gets cold. If they don't have notice from someone that the sidewalk has gotten icy, that doesn't insulate them from liability when somebody sues them for slipping on that icy sidewalk because how was I to know? The word keep implies vigilance. That's the point. And the legislature, and we're just trying to be faithful to the legislative intent here, the legislature used the word keep when it referenced fit and habitable conditions. The landlord is obligated to keep premises in a fit and habitable condition. This pipe, rusted and corroded to the point that it would fall apart, leaking natural gas, is not a fit and habitable condition, or at least there's a jury question as to whether it is. And that's all we're saying here, is that we're not trying to make grand new law in this case. We're simply, simply trying to say that all of the issues all of your honors have raised are great arguments for the jury on both sides of this case, but not an argument to intercept this case and decide it as a matter of law, to insulate this landlord as a matter of law for doing absolutely nothing in 11 and a half years to maintain the furnace, the most obvious part of the house that could cause fire did nothing for 11 and a half years, whether you're looking at it from a statutory perspective or you're looking at it from a common law negligence perspective, that creates a jury question. And that's what we'll be arguing to the jury. We understand what Mr. Levin will be arguing to the jury, and your honors have raised some excellent points that are also jury questions. Uh, Chief Justice Newby, I believe it was you who actually wrote in your dissenting opinion in the Justice versus Rossner case in 2018, jury trials constitute the bedrock of our common law system. And that's all this case is about. It's not about some grand pronouncement of law. It's about our ability to have a jury weigh all of the facts that we've all raised today, which are all great esoteric questions. And that's what juries are great at doing. That's why we let juries do it. Because juries can apply the common sense 
of the community to determine does that make sense that in the preponderance of the evidence presented, the plaintiff has proven their case, whether it's common law negligence or violation of 4242. I want to say a quick word about the Court of Appeals dissent, which expressly relied on this court's 1956 decision in Robinson versus Thomas for the proposition that, quote, if the landlord is without knowledge at the time of the letting of any dangerous defect in the premises, he is not responsible for any injuries which result from such defect. That's in the dissent, relied on by the dissent. Two sentences before that sentence, the 1956 iteration of this court wrote, quote, ordinarily the doctrine of caveat emptor applies to the lessee. Caveat emptor was still the law of the land, your honors. The dissent below embraced Robinson as if the last 67 years and the enactment of GS 4242 had never occurred, hearkening back to a day when landlords rented their premises with virtual impunity. And I literally, listening to Mr. Levin's argument, I felt like I was back in 1956 when landlords rented their premises with virtual impunity. Because basically, he told your honors, that is right. My client didn't have to do anything ever for 11 and a half years to ensure that the premises were fit and habitable. Nothing under common law, nothing under 4242A2. The words keep and maintain the premises in a fit and habitable condition mean absolutely nothing until somebody knocks on my client's door and says, I've got a problem. That isn't right. That can't be right. And in fact, the reason why the A4 notice provision exists is quite clear from A4 itself. Because A4 is talking about needed repairs and that a landlord has an opportunity to make needed repairs. Well, it makes sense that a landlord shouldn't have to make needed repairs if the landlord doesn't know there are repairs that need to be made. To be made. But that's not what we're here talking about. We're talking about a natural gas explosion in unfit and uninhabitable premises, not needed repairs. We're here because the house exploded because this landlord did absolutely nothing in 11 and a half years to check on that furnace to make sure piping around that furnace didn't deteriorate to the condition that it literally would fall apart and allow gas to leak throughout the entire house, which is what happened. In fact, the testimony that his client gave about I could see myself, it was bad, that was his, his aha moment. We're entitled to present his client's aha moment to the jury and ask that jury, shouldn't that aha moment have come before the house blew up and before our client sustained life-altering injuries? That's a jury question, and that's all we're asking of this court is to send this case back down to the trial court to let the jury decide if the defendant's aha moment should have come before our client's life was forever changed. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. In response to the inquiry about Mr. Terry and smelling gas that Chief Justice Newby asked, uh, I would make, uh, I would point out page 248 of the record where Mr. Terry said that he was in his yard 
of the property, and he said, quote, I got a pretty good whiff of natural gas emulating from the property, and that was in March of 2017, something he never told Mr. Lucas about. The Rappaport versus Days In case, which Mr. Epstein just pointed out to the court, dealt with the liability of a landlord motel operator, failure to maintain proper lighting in a common area. I would submit to you that's very, very different than what we have here, and the duty is different. Common area, lights, versus the interior of the tenant's residence. The court in the dissent brought up the Robinson decision, which you just heard from counsel, and arguing that Mr. Lucas wants to go back to 1956. Uh, in response to Justice Deese's question about any decision from this case, holding a landlord liable when he has no notice of a problem, there isn't any, and that's why it hasn't been cited. And the Freelander case, doing away with the distinctions between invitee and other classes that was the law, doesn't change that at all. A again, without belaboring the point, if there's to be a requirement to conduct inspection, if there's a duty to inspect, that's something that the General Assembly could have very easily include within Chapter 42. They have not, but they can if they wish, and the arguments of the amicus talking about the effects of this decision on low-income people, the disabled, and many other groups that they mention, and the studies that they point out they all may be valid points, they all may be valid concerns, but that's not the law. That's for people to argue down the street during the next session of the General Assembly. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Or